Hey, welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. It is good to be with you, and I'm glad to be here with my guest today. Ben Crenshaw is up at Hillsdale. He was born in Dallas, but grew up in Georgia and Maine. Uh, graduated from Taylor University after what looks like a detour at Baylor, which I really don't want to talk about on this episode. Uh, but we both went to uh, Denver Seminary. Uh, both have two degrees from Denver Seminary, and he's a big friend of Tom Brady. <laughs> Uh, he's up at Hillsdale now, uh, doing his PhD there, and so we're going to talk a lot about uh, his uh, transition from Denver Seminary, kind of mainline evangelicalism, if you want to put those two words together, uh, up to Hillsdale, which is more Anglican. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about several other things related to politics and, and America, and um, and so yeah, I'm just really glad to have you on the show, Ben. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chase. Really happy to come on board and chat about these things. Absolutely. So you you went from Baylor to Taylor to Denver Seminary. Or would all those be considered kind of evangelical institutions? Yeah, so I didn't actually go to Baylor. I almost went to Baylor. I went to Taylor gotcha. University for my undergrad in history. And then right after that, I went on to Denver Seminary. And that was, um, you know, when I was at Taylor, I was a history undergrad, and I was thinking about uh, doing a PhD or graduate-level work in American religious history. But then I kind of had like a crisis of faith kind of my church at home fell apart and I decided actually I need to reground myself in Christian theology and exegesis and such. So I decided to go to seminary and my girlfriend at the time, now wife, had just uh, graduated also from Taylor where we met and uh, she had moved back to Colorado where her family is. Her family's from Colorado Springs and she was doing a master's degree up at Fort Collins and I didn't want to date long distance anymore so I decided that Denver Seminary was a good enough seminary for me, and it put me within an hour of her, and that all worked out because we got married and been married for eight and a half years now. So, um, so yeah, anyway, I went to seminary, and I started as an MDiv because I thought I'll just take as many classes as I can. I want to learn as much as I can. But I, I kind of got a little bit into the homiletics, and I figured out really quick, uh, preaching, pastoral ministry is not my thing. I am an academic all the way. So then I switched to do a uh, master's in biblical studies with an emphasis in New Testament. And then later mm-hmm. I added a second master's in kind of the philosophy of religion, apologetics and ethics, which is a, which is a really good program at the seminary um, uh, under Doug Grotice, who's great. And uh, and uh, but it was at the point at that point, that degree was in a curriculum revision. So I did like half a third of my credits in philosophy of religion, and then the other two thirds in apologetics and ethics. I ended up writing my thesis in apologetics. So anyway, I got two academic master's degrees at the seminary, which took a while because I was also working and then I got married. And the academic degrees require that you uh, pass comprehensive exams for both and write a thesis for both. So I ended up writing, researching and writing two theses. And then I worked full time at the seminary for a couple of years in the marketing and communications department before, you know, jumping on the Ph.D. Uh, uh, here in Hillsdale. So. So, yeah, um, I went to Denver Seminary because I wanted a kind of a non-denominational, thoroughly evangelical seminary that was grounded in Scripture that took the Bible seriously. I actually had a professor um, in the history department at Taylor to push me really hard to try to go to Princeton or Yale because he thought I could. Um, okay. and I was just, I was at the point in my life where I was looking to try to reground my faith, not have it called into yeah. question by a secular, unbelieving and skeptical, uh, hostile academic crowd. 
So, sure. so that's why I chose the seminary. So it's non-denominational. I didn't want to go to a Westminster or something like that. Nothing against Westminster per se, but I wasn't looking for a denominational seminary that was going to particularly train me in, in a denominational tradition and try to place me in a church. Um, and yeah, I was, I was interested in broad evangelicalism at the point. I had grown up Baptist mm -hmm. and uh, conservative Baptist in New England um, with uh, great uh, congregational roots and all that stuff. Um, so I was, I considered myself thoroughly evangelical. And then when I was at Taylor, I had attended a Presbyterian church down in Muncie, Indiana. And then when I moved to Denver, the second church I went to was an Anglican church in Inglewood, which is a suburb of Denver, uh, Wellspring. I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with Wellspring yep. Anglican. Um, and so I, I actually, that was the second church I visited and I thought I was going to like attend, you know, a dozen churches before I found the one I wanted. I went to, I went to uh, Mission Hills and the second Sunday I went to, okay. Hill, I went to Wellspring. I was like, this is my church. So I, I didn't, I don't think I ever would say I converted to Anglicanism per se. And at that point, I think uh, the Anglican church there in Denver was still part of AMIA, the Anglican mission in America, which was part of the Rwandan church mm -hmm. plant in America before it got incorporated right. into the Anglican church of North America, the ACNA. So, okay. So I was Anglican for eight years. I was in Denver. And then when I came out to Hillsdale, we kind of looked around for different churches. We tried a Baptist church for a while and then settled on the Anglican church here. Um, okay. So anyway, that's a little bit of like kind of my backstory. Been in the evangelical world basically for 35 years. Um, and uh, yeah, I've kind of, I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I'd say I tr transitioned out of it, but since coming to Hillsdale three years ago, definitely have had a different perspective on evangelicalism and some of its strengths and weaknesses, especially in relationship to current events and politics and the situation in America and so forth. So, yeah, that, that's great background. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's, it can be really interesting when you look back on the providence of God and, and the decisions you make. And they're really more complex than a lot of people give them credit for when you're you're selecting a seminary or a degree program or or, or anything like that. It's kind of like uh, you know, you, you would hope that you're making really well thought out decisions, but for me, it was the same thing. You know, Denver seminary was, uh, within a driving distance of Boulder and that's where we're planting a church. And so that's where I'm going. And then I get into it and I'm like, oh, wow, there's all these different streams and there, you got <clears throat> lots of different people there that don't believe like me. And so, uh, so it made for a really interesting intellectual environment, Yeah. but going to Hillsdale kind of being on the, uh, other side of of that environment, what, what are some things you see kind of like happening in terms of responses to, uh, to either what some have called the next evangelicalism or kind of movements in evangelicalism? And we've had, uh, I think in a, in a group chat, uh, with some friends, I've talked about, you know, the before times, uh, the before times, whether that's 2014, 2016, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, you know, there's been some, some developments in the last decade where when I was planting a church in the early 2010s, in evangelicalism, there seemed to be at least a lot of unity. You know, you had the Cool Kids Club, the Young Wrestles Reform, and now that's fractured. And so what are some responses you're seeing um, on this side of where we're at? If, if we've reached the precipice yet, which it feels like we have, but, um, but what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not an expert on the history of Christianity in America or evangelicalism per se. And part of the issue with evangelicalism is it's always been a broad tent movement based around you know, a commitment to basic gospel truth, euangelion. 
Um, and so it cuts across Protestant denominations. It excludes some like high church Episcopalians and Anglicans who wouldn't consider themselves to be evangelical. Um, but yeah, my, my, uh, my experience is that prior to, well, I'd say prior to 2019, when I started at here at Hillsdale, I would have considered myself kind of a, um, gospel coalition, broad tent, um, uh, National Review reading, conservative evangelical, uh, kind of the mm -hmm. normie neocon uh, uh, world. And um, yeah, and, and I, I was, you know, big fan of, of uh, the kind of liberal society in general and capitalism and the markets and so forth. And in a kind of um, neutral engagement with Christian principles and liberal principles in the American experiment, or what I knew of it. But what ended up happening is I did my my New Testament uh, thesis on Roman emperor worship in, in the New Testament, and I was trying to get at, oh, okay. at the issue of religion and politics in the ancient world as it intersect between Rome and New Testament communities. Um, and I wanted to go on and do a PhD in like political theology or religion and politics, but I just couldn't find a good program that would really did mm. that. So I decided I just needed to do my PhD in politics in and of itself for political science. Okay. And so that's why I, I ended up going to Hillsdale. I have also applied to Notre Dame and Baylor. That's where I almost went to Baylor. Um, gotcha. yeah. uh, and, uh, and, and so I so I came here to study politics proper and uh, Hillsdale is a Christian school it was founded by free will Baptist in 1844 has a great rich intellectual and Christian history. It's still a broadly Christian school people who say oh it's not Christian they just don't know what they're talking about. Um, but it's not evangelical per se, you find mm. a range of people here from different uh, uh, Christian or Protestant denominations there's a great is a is a quite a large Catholic minority, maybe 30%, um, which brings a whole different uh, understanding of things that's not evangelical in the least. Um, and that has right. a lot of history and experience in social and political engagement. Um, and the synthesis of classical uh, Greek thought and Christian theology as well, going back to Aquinas. So coming to Hillsdale kind of like blew the roof off my understanding of the world through the evangelical vein or the evangelical bubble. And um, it, some of that was, you know, I've read like Mark Knoll and evangelicalism and such, and he kind of points out that evangelicalism, of course, has some of its roots in the first and second great awakening in terms of it's kind of a, a revivalistic, a pietistic, um, a conversionism type of movement that is activistic in some ways, enthusiastic. And in one sense, maybe we might say it's quote unquote, anti-intellectual, although that's kind of a screed, it's somewhat of a slander. I mean, when I was at, at uh, uh, Taylor and then the seminary, I didn't find evangelicals to be against learning or reason or so forth. They just right. always yeah. understand reason within the bounds of scripture. And that has certain limits. Sure. And the issue with that I found in studying politics is that the Bible just doesn't talk about politics much. And mm -hmm. if you're, you know, it does give some broad principles in the Old and New Testament. Um, you get Jesus has a few things here and there. You kind of have to know how to read historical genres um, and extract ideas, broad principles, um, paradigms, typologies from those. 
but it doesn't just it's just not a manual on civil government and so if you're actually looking you know how do you form a government what is government for what is its ends and and how's how are we supposed to actually run a country and all the, the particulars all the determinatios and in, in, in the specifics it's very difficult to go back to the bible and just say well i'm going to start with biblical principles in this sort of kind of biblicism away and extract a biblical theology from that so sure. what ends up happening is you know here at hillsdale the, tr the political tradition is much broader you know we start reading plato and aristotle but really before that we go back to hesiod homer heraclitus some of the other pre-socratics and greek uh, uh playwrights and poets and such um because they had a very rich intellectual tradition of reasoning well about human nature and politics and i just hmm. you never find that in evangelicalism um yeah. i had a history of i had two history of philosophy semesters at the seminary and we did read some plato and aristotle but that was because it was a philosophy of religion degree and sure. otherwise you know kind of these secular sources greek or roman are somewhat eschewed by evangelicals because they're you know they're not scripture or at least if there's something to be learned from them it has to always be um kind of attenuated or confined to scriptural limits and so forth and and so so that it's it's good in one sense to be grounded in scripture that's our final authority as protestants we believe but there's also reason and there's tradition and there's experience and there's there's kind of the wesleyan quadrilateral there's those sure. different streams of input and knowledge and they have to be kind of work through in a dialectic, even as you continually go back to scripture. So coming to Hillsdale helped me to kind of rethink politics in a non-evangelical way. And so a lot of the kind of like evangelical cliches we hear about politics and culture, I just don't apply here. And I think that they're totally, okay. totally wrong. So some of the, yeah, so some of those would be like, um, you know, uh, evangelicalism is is been polluted by politics. So we have this kind of like politicized faith. They'll tell us, okay. and yeah. um, and, and part part of the problem here is that, or oh, they'll say they'll say also like we need to a return to gospel, uh, and civic engagement that's not rancorous political engagement. So we want to like have sure. a public witness and we want to transform the culture. We want a gospel centered hermeneutic and engagement with the world and to give them the hope of the gospel. But we don't want to be involved in politics or something like that. Or we want to right. kind of have a salutary effect on politics, but not actually ever do politics, um, not actually sure. ever get into the business, the dirty business of governing, um, which requires power and coercion and law and, all, and punishment and all kinds of things. Um, so part of the problem here is that this this these kind of sentiment is a misunderstanding of evangelicalism, of the gospel and of politics. So it misunderstands mm. evangelicalism, because even though I talked about evangelicalism being kind of uh, pietistic, um, enthusiastic revival setting, I mean, by the evangelicalism, of course, has morphed and changed over the years, but it's always had a political component. It's always had an activist component that says we need to take the truths of scripture and apply them in society in some way. And so, you know, you go back to like the 1790s, um, there was a synthesis. Uh, Marginal talks about this in his book, America's God. And um, the synthesis was that there were like three, there were three components, basically a broad Protestant theology with an evangelicalism, 
a commitment to Republican political philosophy or self-government and a commitment to kind of a moral common sense reasoning, which comes out of uh, Scottish common sense uh, philosophy, uh, David Hume and uh, Thomas Reed and those guys. Um, and, and so it's kind of, kind of a form of like direct moral realism that you can know moral truths through the use of constant conscience and judicial sentiment and, uh, reasoning about design and the ends of design teleology and nature and things like that. And so from the, you know, going back 250 years, evangelicalism has, has been involved in politics. So the idea that we would have a non-political evangelicalism is ahistorical. And really the problem here, the problem is that we have a misunderstanding of politics and is somewhat a misunderstanding of the gospel. So you know, to take those in reverse order, I would say that the gospel is has political ramifications. And to get that out of, say, Jesus's ministry in the New Testament is tricky, but I'll show you how in a second. And okay. uh, a misunderstanding of politics, because what ends up happening is the evangelical critique of politics is really a critique of, say, political science or party politics. And those aren't the okay. same thing as politics. Um, okay. So if you want me to elaborate on that, I can. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, because I, I don't, you know, all this stuff is, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a newbie to a lot of it. I try to be around people like you that think about this stuff deeply. And I'm, I'm quickly inundated with a lot of phrases, words, and history that I'm like, not familiar with, but a lot of the history I am researching, uh, you know, quickly runs into these matters. And so feel free to illuminate. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just, let's take these real quick. So when I was looking at political science programs in the United States, um, most of them labeled themselves as political science. Now, in one sense, that's non, that's not objectionable. You know, science comes from the Latin, uh, conscientia, just, uh, uh sciencia knowledge. And um, and so it's a it's a knowledge of political things. But the way it's understood and practiced today in America is in a, a way that's antithetical to um, kind of the historical and political philosophical approach of politics. And so what I found at Hillsdale is that um, Hillsdale has an approach. Their pol their program is in politics, not political science. And let me explain the difference. So the Hillsdale program focuses on um, theory, so political philosophy, number one, mm -hmm. then institutionality, so um, and within the American context, so the American institutions of declaration, the Constitution, Bill of Rights, and the different branches of government, administrative state, how we govern with constitutional law, and so forth. And then finally, leadership in their statesmanship program. So those are the three things you really need. You need Con you need conceptuality. You have to have the right kind of principles and an understanding, but then you have to apply those in institutions and in civil institutions, right. and you need good leaders to do that. And if you don't right. have those three things, you won't have a functioning politics. Now, what right. modern political science does is it says, um, well, it kind of excuse the theory in some ways because modern science has um, tried to reduce human life to a, an observable, testifiable, empirical, and repetitive um, a reduction so that you, you can get sure knowledge out of it. Now, one of the issues here sure. is that um, 
politics really is the uh, the realm of prudence. And prudence moves mm -hmm. from kind of your first principles that can be known through reasoning or through divine revelation and to the the application of those first principles or through kind of a natural law. All law is general, so you need application of general law. And prudence has to, um, you know, has to take into consideration specific, specific particulars. And so the problem is <clears throat> knowledge in the ancient Greek uh, conception was an, a knowledge of things that were invariable and eternal. Aristotle talks about this in book six of his Nicomachean Ethics. But when you try to apply an eternal and invariable knowledge to human things, which is what politics is, you're applying it to something that's changing all the time because human life changes and society changes and, and customs and norms change and so forth. So it seems like it's hard to come up with a knowledge of politics and prudence is always adjusting to the facts on the ground. So mm. political science doesn't like to do prudential politics. It doesn't like adjustment. Okay. It wants a sure determination, a scientific analysis, and a kind of a mechanistic way of life, um, kind of basically physicalist account of human life that's non-transcendent. So it's also in many ways secular or atheistic. Okay. So political science is, is kind of is a different beast than politics per se. Um, and I think, you know, there's other issues there and I won't get into all of it. So um, politics, I want to talk a little bit about just like what we're dealing with when we're talking about politics and maybe why evangelicals uh, need to rethink this. Okay. And the best the best place to start with this is to go back to. The ancient city, which is the polis. And what you have there is you have a people that um, have come together and associated with each other. Um, they have either a common bond through blood or origin. Um, they have common customs, norms, behaviors, patterns, conventions, and their laws encode all of that. But they also, what really makes a people, a polis, a polis, is they have the same end. So what you find when you read Aristotle is he'll say that the end for which everybody is seeking is happiness. And okay. happiness is not the modern notion of just, well, I just want to be happy. And it's kind of the superficial, pleasurable pursuit of entertainment and mindless, uh, mindlessness or distraction or something like that. Now, happiness is this, sure. it's this eudaimonia. This actually, it's a divine pursuit of the genuine good, the good life human flourishing. And so what Aristotle says is that different cities or different political communities are defined by their different conceptions of happiness. Sure. And that the architectonic science, which determines that, or doesn't determine that happiness, but discovers it and orients people toward it is politics. So mm -hmm. politics is the discipline or the science that helps orient us toward genuine human happiness. Now, why is this? This is because humans are political animals. They're politicon zoon, or they're rational animals as well. And so if, you know, we, we have, you know, as seminary students, we study Greek. We know the logos in John 1 is the word. So logos means word, statement, relating to language. But it also means reason. So it's a, right. it's a reasonable principle. 
And so humans are the only kind of higher primates that have both the capacity for reason and out of that, the capacity for speech. And that makes us naturally and intrinsically social. So that's, we're naturally oriented because of speech and reason toward other people in a social community, which makes us naturally political. And yeah. so we can't, none of us are self-sufficient. None of us can survive on our own. We need other people to survive. We're born into dependent relationships with our parents and other people in the community. And so, right. so politics is part of our nature. The, the science of politics comes out of our very nature. The fact that we are in human association and we need other people. And the fact that politics is this pursuit by nature of the end of man, which is happiness. I think real quick, I want to jump in there because you, you, you brought up two really good things that I think a lot of people, they're surprised when I'm curious about politics. And you brought up the relational aspect, the social aspect, and the contingent aspect, the finite aspect. Those are big themes in my own work and in, uh, in Christian spirituality and uh, discipleship and formation. And what, uh, if I can make a defense of my own uh, kind of intellectual pursuits and the way I've kind of been processing it is that, you know, for a lot of people who get into the academic disciplines of spirituality, Christian spirituality formation, uh, they tend to gravitate towards more individual uh, components, talking about relational health, uh, psychological integration, uh, kind of growth and maturity as humans, human development theories and that kind of thing. And, and the reason that there's a natural overlap for me with these kind of discussions with you is because, you know, that is, that is part of that discipline, but those invariably impact other people and how power is distributed and, and works out in society. It, it, you know, family, you could talk about family theory and then just broaden it. Um, it's just, you have family, state and church. Um, and so I'm curious about all three. How relationally do people thrive in all three environments? Um, and so I think for me personally, the the Christian formation, Christian Christian spirituality, it it was born out of more of a family thing for me, and then the church. And now I'm like, well, there's more. And how does our society? How should a good society relate to one another while acknowledging our own contingencies and finiteness and dependency on others, um, which are kind of givens and and uh, norms that the Bible assumes about reality and that we can all experience, whether you're a Christian or not, you all, you, you can intuit that naturally. So I think that's a really important thing uh, to tie in and it's really helped me kind of gel like, okay, this is why this is interesting to me. It's not just, you know, people will read on an article like James Wood or something like that uh, at first things and go, he's just doing politics. And it's like, well, you know, people, evangelicals typically have this view when you say politics, it's like, well, that's dirty or that's, unbiblical or that's whatever it is, you know, they try to disparage it. And it's like, if you care about relationships, you care about politics. Like that's, that's, that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are all good points. And the idea that you can, you could not do politics is itself a political position that's untenable, you know, and once you don't, right. you don't want to say that politics is, is everything. It's not, but I mean, that, right. that presupposes that we're doing some kind of party politics. So you're a, you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, and you're taking your party platform into right. all of that. Now, now, I'm trying to broaden our understanding of politics, to understand that the pursuit of human happiness understood as the good life, including family, including work, including religious worship and, and the, the knowledge of God, including human associations and political justice. All of those things fall right. under politics.
So yeah, you, you, all of these associations in some way exist at the behest of civil government. Um, you know, you have some people who want to say we can have anarcho-capitalism. We don't need government, no. But that that only exists in theory and a utopia, which is a no place. And in Tijuana. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, because, you know, humans are, yeah, they're fallen and they uh, there's factions and there's conflict and people like to conquer others and rule over them. And so if right. you're going to have... It, you know, Locke talks about this and, you know, we can get into whether or not the founders were Lockean. They were to some extent. Um, but, you know, he says, like, you know, you need a you need a central arbiter to determine conflicts among people. And the the determination of an arbiter to resolve problems among people is what brings you out of the state of nature and into political or civil society. And so as soon as you have mm. conflicts between people, which is inevitable, um, you need political society to resolve those problems and to pursue justice, both in terms of distribution and restitution. So you really mm -hmm. can't you really can't have human association without almost immediately having some kind of political society. And even you can talk about something like right. church and state. You know, church-state relations, of course, is a thorny. It's a huge technical thorny problem um, going back many millennia, but. In the ancient world, there, were, there, I mean, there wasn't a church, but there were priests, and there was a religious devotion, and it was subordinate to the political state. So to, to obey the uh, laws was to engage in religious piety and vice versa. Those went together very closely. Um, so uh, with, with the advent of Christianity, you have the introduction of kind of a potential rival to uh, political organization. And in, in the sense that prior mm -hmm. to this, uh, you, you basically had the rule of convention. Um, you had namas or law, which determined kind of your customs and your norms. And it held, held itself up within like a Greek or Roman city state of this is the standard of, for living. This is good. This is true. This is right. And it also has a sacred origin or some kind of sacred foundation or impetus. And this is why you ought to obey sure. it. It's good for you. It's, it's part of our ancestry and heritage and so forth. But with the advent of Christian theology, there was the, an, 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 an external uh, divine source and revelation that kind of held all individual political communities to account to the same standard. Mm -hmm. Now, prior, right. prior to the Christian advent, Socrates had kind of had his quote unquote second sailing when he moved from uh, kind of a pre-Socratic analysis of the external world and the celestial heavens and the stars and things to turning to uh, political affairs of men in which he sought to bring a, stan a standard of nature which is also universal, a universal standard of natural right of, of political justice to each to each city to say, this is what's true. This is what's right and wrong. This is how you ought to act. And that's going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, that can be threatening to the conventions of a city. And in the same, yeah. and in the same way, uh, a, a theology, which appeals to a divine standard of right and of truth and of goodness is also um, can also be a threat to a, a political city. So, so you have, you know, you have these 
these these two kind of competing standards, the convention of the city and the church, and you know how you put those together after you know the advent of Christ is is a good conversation, kind of a different conversation than we're having now. It's it's technical, and I have a particular view on that, which very simply is that the church should inform the the state and the civil society on the nature of man and the end of man and his obligations okay. to one another and to God. But it should not okay. it should not specifically be in the process of political governance. But okay. so so in in one sense the the church comes first and educates, habituates and directs government in terms of the nature and the ends of man. But then it leaves it to government within right. those bounds to figure out all the particulars. Because you know, you don't want the church overseeing your utility bill or whether or not water comes to your house or something, you know, you don't want that. Like the, the church isn't going to be good at that. Right. Um, no. So, so there's a way to put together the two kind of competing standards of the state and church such that they cooperate well. And I think the American founders did that really well and we haven't done it well. Now what, what's going on today in America is that we've abandoned the natural and divine founding of America in the 18th century. And, you know, people are losing okay. their minds about this idea of Christian nationalism. And I used to try to nuance that to the nth degree. And now I'm just like, nah, America had a Christian founding. <laughs> we, yeah. we were a dominant Protestant Christian country. That was the, the, the majority of the people were that way. The, the founders themselves speak about natural law and uh, the, the God that can be known by nature and all of that is compatible with divine revelation. And many of them themselves were practicing Christians. And so, yeah, we were basically a Christian nation. Um, but what's happened is, yeah, yeah go ahead. Can I yeah. ask a question about that? Okay, so, because me and my friends, we were in a huge text group, uh, text conversation last night. Because one of our friends is like, America wasn't a Christian. He, he's, he's like pretty aligned. Like, it's not like, these aren't arguments like we don't, we, we have a lot of assumptions that we already align on. But this is one particular historical thing that we're talking about. And so I want to hear your take on it, because his perspective is like, America wasn't a Christian nation. It, it may have inherited some, some uh, ideas from Christianity, but because you have Jefferson and these other guys who aren't Christians, um, you know, it inherently uh, was more of a always a secular political project than it was necessarily a Christian project. So... When you when you call it a Christian nation, which I tend to agree with you, uh, looking back historically, how do you identify something, any nation, as a Christian nation? Sure. So, I mean, you could try to say, like, well, a Christian nation would mean that you have to find principles from the New Testament as to how you construct a nation being Christian. That's not what I mean. There's kind of okay. two ways to think about this. Okay. <clears throat> the two ways to think about it is kind of as... America as have within Aristotelian causal causality. So you have um, your uh, material, efficient, final, and formal causes in Aristotle's metaphysics, and the the kind of the formal cause of the American founding is the kind of natural law and natural rights language that you find in some of the organic laws of the United States and the state constitutions. And you know, like the Declaration, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, the Northwest Ordinance, the state constitutions, and then tons of the letters between the founders. Like they're talking 
in terms of kind of natural law, natural rights language. But that only makes sense. And it's predicated upon the people themselves being a Christian people. I mean, you go back, you're going to find Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, you could even include Quakers in Pennsylvania, like at the colonies were basically all Protestant colonies. Now, there is some debate among sociologists about to what extent there was church attendance at the founding era and blah, blah, blah. But my view on that is that basically everybody was going to church or they were having some kind of worship at home. So the, the, the matter of the American people, the material cause of the American founding was Christian. And you could only kind of abstract to a natural rights or a natural law language because it was predicated upon Protestant theology and concepts. Like the idea of a social compact or a social covenant comes out of a Protestant and biblical idea of covenantalism. And so the same way that God would covenant with his people, we are going to covenant with each other. That's a huge strain, a huge influence in the American founding. But then there's also like, say, the efficient cause of the American founding would be the founders themselves, the statesmen who made things happen. Washington, who led the Continental Army, uh, Madison and Wilson and and, uh, Governor Morris and others who helped draft the Constitution. Um, And then the final cause of the American founding is the Declaration. And so the declar- so the final cause comes first in time, even though it's last mm. in, 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 in actual actualization. And so what you okay. find in the constant, you see, the, the debate about whether or not America is a Christian nation really comes down to this, like, charge that the Constitution is godless. And so mm. what you have is a Constitution that never mentions God. And so there's this breach or this separation between the Declaration, which has a couple of different mentions of God as creator, providence, almighty God, and so forth. Kind of God as legislator, judge, executioner, and so forth. Um, and then the Constitution, which has no mention of God. And people try to s- drive these apart and say, therefore, the American Revolution was this kind of radical Christian movement. And then there was kind of a breakdown in the 1780s. And the Constitution represents this kind of secular god godless movement, something that was different right. from or an abandonment of the American Revolution and the Declaration. The problem with that argument is it just misunderstands how these things are being put together. And the best way to, to grasp this is to look at the states' constitutions. What you have in the state constitutions is that all the states in the 1770s and 1780s and 90s rewrote their constitutions. Really, they rewrote their royal colonial charters because they were breaking away from Great Britain and they were no longer under the crown of parliament. So they had to come up with their own constitution. And what you find in state constitutions, and you ought to go and just read them, they're really interesting, is you have a preamble, which is the same thing as the declaration. You have a bill of rights, which is our bill of rights. And then you have the kind of technical, formal, legal stipulations of how government's gonna be run, which is the constitution. It's just that at the national level, those three things were split apart, whereas they're put together in a single moment in state constitutions. So historically, you had to Mm. first declare independence, which means you had to say, we are unifying together as a people with a common end. And our common end is that we are pursuing life, liberty, and happiness, genuine eudaimonia, the good life, and that we, we are doing this with, under the auspices of a creator God and the laws of nature and nature's God. 
So it's a divine context. Um, that's the that's kind of defines our union as a people, a common people. And if you can go to like Federalist number two, where John Jay talks about this, Madison talks about it also in terms of we were like knit together as a kindred people uh, that shared the same language and the same religion and the same custom and the same heritage and so forth. So there is right. a lot of people want to say, oh, America is just a creedal nation. We just believe in the idea mm. of equality or the idea of liberty, of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Anybody can be an American. And I think that's true to an extent, but there's also an ethnic and heritage component. We're Anglo and and, and right. our heritage. And that has to be acknowledged. And that's really resisted today. Uh, yeah, it's very resisted. Yeah. It, it sounds racist. I mean, like, it just sounds racist when you put it, uh, when you break it down. It sounds racist because people have been um, habituated. I was going to say indoctrinated, but it's a little bit too strong. They've been taught, <laughs> they've been taught that America is this kind of <clears throat> non-ethnic, creedal nation. It's got this kind of liberal key that's like unlocking a new rights and progress of human, you know, actuality and potentiality going forward. And in, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a grab bag. You know, anybody can come to America, they can set up their own little uh, enclave and be whatever they want. That's not sure. That's not the view of the American founders. Not at all. It's okay. not just like this, like liberal pluralism in which you can make America whatever you want it to be. Sure. So there is there is an kind of an ethnic or a communal component to America. Um, and, so, and so anyway, to go back to the declaration was this final cause declared first. Then you had to win independence. Then you had to come up with the kind of constitutional legal stipulations of how this is all going to work, the mechanisms of separation of powers and representation and extended sphere of the republic and um, all, all, those, all these kinds of things. Um, a compound republic is what we are with you know, a, nas a national government over the great and, and aggregate interests of the people, mostly foreign policy, but also some issues related to you know, interstate commerce and, and treaties and so forth. Um, and then the states and the state government. So there's a compound republic. All those technical stipulations are found in the Constitution, which is what the Federalist Papers unpack for us. And then later, two, a couple years later, they added on the Bill of Rights. And so it was historically it was just separated, even though conceptually mm. it all goes together. Sure. So you would never read a state constitution and say, well, because the preamble mentions God, but the technical constitutional components don't. Therefore, it's a godless document. Gotcha. Okay. So you you actually have to read, kind of have to like have a meta narrative, so to speak, of the American founding, in which you put the Declaration, Constitution, and Bill of Rights all together as organic components of the national federal law, and then you can rec mm -hmm. realize it's not a godless or secular founding, and then you, of course you can just go to the Federalist Papers or. Uh, many of the different writings like the Northwest Ordinance, Washington's farewell address, his Thanksgiving proclamation, his letters to the Quakers and the Baptists and the Catholics and others. And you find like religious language all throughout it. The, uh, the contention that you can't have a free people if they're not both moral, virtuous and religion right. and religious, true worship of God. Yeah. And that religious liberty is really the is the right to pursue the knowledge and worship of God, the true God, as long as you peace you do it in a way that's peaceable to and 
compatible with the common good of society. That doesn't en okay. endanger the health or public health, safety, morals, or peace of society. And so there's there's no like <clears throat> liberal neutrality in which anything any religion goes, um, or uh, you know it, it, it the, the national government doesn't care or the state governments don't care about God or religion. Um, and they're just kind of going to hold to these procedural uh, principles of um, innocent until proven guilty and trial by jury and, sure. uh, and, and balancing interests and things like that, because, you know, everybody is, you know, you can have a mosque on one corner and a temple on another corner and a, you know, a church on another corner. Right now, you know, it's, this conversation is a little bit more complicated and I won't go on too much longer, but because there was certainly diversity in the founders. So if you read on the issue of like religion, if you read, just read Jefferson, Madison and Franklin, you're going to come away with a more um, positive view of say general religious plurality, Okay. but they were in the minority. And so what you have to, part of the problem is that people were like, well, America is a secular nation because I read Jefferson. I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad you read Jefferson. Have you read Theophilus Parsons and the Essex result? Um, you know, have you, have you read Washington and, and some of his letters? I mean, there's a, there's a lot. I mean, have you read Jonathan Mayhew, which is what my diss is on? You know, there's a lot of other people. There's a lot of other voices. You should read James Wilson. You should read Gouverneur Morris. Um, you should read Rufus King. I mean, there's a lot of other founders involved. And when you look at kind sure. of the body, their body of work on religion it's much more that what kind of what i was saying earlier that this is a a kind of a christian religious liberty so really religious liberty at the american founding was better termed christian liberty okay and and the and the issue here was that they were trying they were pushing against the stipulations of particular doctrines particular forms of worship particular interpretations of the sacraments as um, boundaries or requirements for uh, salvation and involvement in the church, and therefore also right. civil society. Okay. So we're saying, so more it's like kind of a, a generic non-denominational Christian establishment is basically what the founding was. Even though okay. I would say that was kind of the majority view, although you have people like Madison and Franklin who are pushing against that to try to. Is, you know, Franklin talks about, well, maybe we could involve, uh, you know, Muslims and, and Jews as long as they, I mean, even Locke says this in one point in his letter on toleration, as long as they obey the laws of the Commonwealth and they're not violating the rights and the life and the liberties of other people, which simply means okay. as long as they're abiding by the majority opinion of the Christian people. So they're still like living basically as a, a religious minority and a Christian majority. And that's what yeah, right. that's what America has been basically throughout yeah. all our history. And it's only been in the last 50 years that a militant, secular, academic elite class that has produced a really a, an elite uh, political oligarchy that has attempted to completely subvert, destroy the kind of traditional American ways of life, including its Christian founding into and, and to pillory that into poison people's minds against it and, you know, to decry from Politico and Washington Post and New York Times, all these ridiculous, you know, uh, hysterical takes on quote unquote Christian nationalism, which, you know, 50 years ago, everyone would have been like, yeah, pretty much. 
Yeah, right. So, okay, final question, <clears throat> kind of as we're wrapping up, is because uh, I want to make sure we covered any loose ends that maybe we hinted at earlier in the show. Um, you mentioned the ev- that evangelicals generally either there's misunderstandings related to the gospel, to politics, all this kind of stuff. So as we kind of tie it back together in the last 50 years, your, your, uh, what you're putting out there is the idea that, you know, there's been kind of this <clears throat> attempt to get away from the Christian founding. How have evangelicals wrongly attempted to either combat that or have they, have they just become, um, in sync with that narrative? Like what, what are you seeing them either mistake in the gospel and its impacts in society or history? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I think that a lot of it has been, um, a general evangelical acceptance of what I would call kind of call like, you know, the George Bush conservative, compassionate conservatism or kind of broad evangelical Republican governance or something like that. Um, and, and that they've, they've accepted the idea of quote unquote liberal neutrality that America had a liberal founding. And while we should try to influence the culture, be culturally engaged and things like that, to actually try to implement Christian laws or laws that are accord with uh, the natural law and divine law, as classically understood, um, somehow that's a violation of the American founding or the American way of life mm. or the Constitution or Declaration. That, and, and, par- and, and I think part of the problem is, at least in my own experience, maybe it's just because of the people I've bumped into, I just haven't found, I haven't, I haven't really in, found or engaged with evangelicals who uh, are, you know, like well-trained as political philosophers or statesmen or constitutional lawyers or things like that. So there's, there's kind of, in one sense, there's almost an, a kind of an anti-intellectualism. It's not really anti-intellectual. It's just there's a focus on other things. And so there's a, there's a dereliction right. in, say, a careful and systematic, thorough uh, understanding of American history, and specifically the 20th century, and how the 20th century really fundamentally changed a lot of things about American culture. And so, and say like the American, like the kind of, and, and part of the problem here, of course, I have to say this is that there's a division between elite evangelicalism, what we might call big evangelicalism or big Eva, and kind of the major outlets there. And there's no like Right. single, I mean, Christianity Today maybe is the, the guide star of the evangelical movement right. or something like that. Um, sure. You know, before it was, you know, Billy Graham or Carl F.H. Henry or something like that. Um, their, their response, well, first of all, the, the distinction between the evangelical, elite evangelicals and the normal, kind of the average normal evangelicals. I actually think that your average evangelical Christian is much more in tune with the realities that are going on today than your elite group, which is kind of insulated in its own um, kind of academic and elite political circles and is trying to like influence the culture without ever offending the culture. Um, Right. And and so part, so, so I think some of the deficiencies of evangelicalism, can be seen very clearly in the response to Trump. So Trump ran in 2016, supposedly exit polls showed that 80% of evangelicals, white evangelicals voted for Trump. You know, we got to throw in the racial component. Um, Right. 
I don't know how much I believe exit polls, but okay, we'll just go with it. So this is sure. somehow a <clears throat> a sign of you know, evangelical debasement or a hypocritical uh, moral standard because they were all in a huff about Bill Clinton and his you know sexual infidelity in office, and yet they voted for Trump. And you know you got all the David French lines, all that kind of mealy mouth, low testosterone, sure. you know, hot takes, and all that stuff. Um, sure. And but but the problem is that there's just not actually an, an understanding of what Trump was, what why Trump came about. I would highly recommend that listeners go read Angela Cotavilla's article in The Spectator in 2010 called America's Ruling Class. What Cotavilla okay. does, and Cotavilla was a, he was a fellow at Claremont Institute in California, um, and he was a phenomenal scholar on foreign policy and American uh, theory and such. But what he does is he basically lays out like how an American oligarchy came to be formed, like the idea that we're still living under constitutional law. No nonsense. We live under mm. administrative law An administration like the CDC or the FDA or the Health and Human Services, which have combined the legislative power to make law, executive power to enforce it and the judicial power to hold basically agency courts that are outside of the federal court system. And so they have combined those three powers of government into one through the, the process of congressional delegation, which started under FDR. And this is the very definition mm. of tyranny given by the founders, the combination of mm. these three powers into one, where you're judge, jury, and executioner all at once. And the, the, so, so what we're facing is this kind of this elite class that's formed an oligarchy that governs through agencies, this just completely destroyed the consent of the people and the ability for the American people to rule themselves, has violated American life, has pushed things like, I mean, you know, Roe versus Wade is like part of this elite oligarchy, these well-trained, you know, secular academics who uh, went through Harvard Law School or Yale and then got on the court and they pushed their own progressive leftist ideas of women's rights and uh, the right to privacy and the penumbras and emanations coming out of the Constitution. Right. All this nonsense. All this nonsense. So, so, the, so the whole point here is that evangelicals didn't seem capable or knowledgeable to be able to grasp that Trump was kind of the people's man to push back against an abusive and tyrannical oligarchical class that had taken over America, was trying to destroy the American identity and the founding and the constitution and traditional ways of life. So I think right. like some, some of my criticisms of evangelicalism has co have come when I kind of got out of the evangelical bubble and began a very serious, careful and in-depth study of primary texts in American history and constitutional law and things like that, political theory in the, in the American founding to say, well, what's really going on here? So, I mean, that's, that's right. kind of the best short answer I can give. That's great. And I think for me, a lot of it came from uh, watching my own, listening to my own family members, right? It's more of a <clears throat> kind of what you talked about, people in the pews and, and people on the ground. It's like when I listen to my, my wife's grandmother, you know, tearing up about what's going on in our country and my parents, you know, frustrated, uh, about what's going on. And I'm listening to them with, with, uh, the same charitability that I've been taught to give, uh, people, yep. um, 
and in a, in a degree of suspicion, because honestly, there was a degree of suspicion around my own family's kind of motivations. And like, I think if you just listen to people and you study history, um, you start to see a little bit, uh, some of this more clearly. And it's unfortunate that so many even evangelicals, whether you call them Big Eve or whatever, in the ruling uh, regime evangelicals are so beholden to, uh, to kind of these, these myths that have been created. Um, but I think there's a lot more to talk about. I'd love to have you back on because I want to talk about tyranny um, and kind of like the uh, the history of how Christians have engaged with that. I mean, sure. there's a great book by Gary Stewart um, on justifying revolution. Yep. I need to get him on the podcast, but there's a lot more we could talk about. But for now, I think we're going to call it a day. Awesome. So thanks so much for being on here. Uh, is there a place that people could connect with you, stay up to date with you, any writing or anything like that you want to point into? Um, I mean, you can. I guess you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I think my handle is at Ben R. Crenshaw. Um, I'm not really very active on Twitter. I'm mostly a lurker and that's, that's a, that's a deliberate choice because I'm, I'm trying to finish my PhD, which takes all of my concentration and effort. I can't get distracted, you know, fighting noobs on Twitter. So, um, um, yeah, you could, I, I, I have published some things at the public discourse, although I look back at those now and I think, ah, I think I've changed my mind. Um, that's funny. So yeah. And I'm also on Facebook. You can just look up Ben R. Crenshaw at Facebook and sometimes I post some stuff, but, uh, I might start, okay. a, a, uh, Substack at some point, And that would just be Ben R. Crenshaw at Substack at Substack.com. But yeah, for now I, I'm, I try to keep my internet presence to a minimum so that I don't, uh, you know, destroy my reputation unnecessarily. <laughs> it, it's a terrible it's a terrible prudential calculation but yeah you know cancel culture is a real thing and you have it's a, it's a good one you have to take it seriously yeah. you know so yeah for sure all right ben well thanks so much for being on the episode listener if you uh enjoyed this episode i'd love for you to subscribe give it a great rating share it with a friend uh also i've got the patreon link in my uh my bio or the, uh, the kind of description of the show. I'd love for you to click on that. Uh, jump in at any amount. Uh, we can have some great conversations on, uh, on future episodes, guests you want to hear from, topics you want to see us delve into more. Uh, but thanks so much for listening today, and we'll see you next time.